This evening we'll explore equanimity, the balance and equipoise in the mind, living with the heart of greatness, even in times of stress and uncertainty and turbulence. In Taos, New Mexico, where I live, <clears throat> we have what is considered uh, to be a sacred mountain, one amongst many mountains surrounding the Taos Valley. And this sacred mountain is, is actually within the Pueblo, the village of the Tiwa Indians that sits on <clears throat> the north edge of the town of Taos. This particular mountain is sacred to the Tiwa people. And it's also a sacred symbol for many Taosinos. I have the good fortune to be able to look out at it and to take it in, in every season, any time of the day or night, on any day of the year as it's very clearly visible from where I live. This mountain, any mountain, just simply sits where it is. The sun shines on it, rain and hail fall on it, snow covers it, lightning strikes it, fires sometimes rage on it, All sorts of life forms are born and die on it, living out their particular life patterns on and with the mountain. The mountain remains unshakable, unwavering. The mountain of radical acceptance, the mountain of impartiality, the mountain of equanimity. The mountain itself is a live energy, uh, a lively energy, but only exists in relationship to all of the myriad, lively, constantly changing energies that constitute it. The mountain appropriately sustains and supports the activity that it's intricately and intimately connected to. The mountain of equanimity doesn't cling on, it isn't attached or averse to anything. We might say that it lets life live through itself, closing off to nothing and holding on to nothing. And all of this happens with the amazing grace of impartiality and balance. The Buddha described what he called six-limbed equanimity, meaning equanimity in relationship to what comes in at each of the six sense doors, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and the mind door. This six-limbed 
Equanimity was described as the equanimity of one whose afflictive states or cankers, as the Buddha often called them, have been destroyed. Destroyed temporarily, as happens in the deep concentration of jhana, or destroyed completely, destroyed finally, as occurs in the final completion of vipassana practice. And who abides in the natural state of purity in relationship to the desirable and undesirable objects that come into focus at any of the six sense doors. And so we we begin our exploration of upekka, which is the Pali word for equanimity. Equanimity is a very powerful force in our practice, a powerful force in the whole of our life. And in the Buddhist teaching, it's included as one of the seven factors of enlightenment, our last uh, uh, factor that we're looking at in this series this evening. It's also one of the ten paramis, or ten perfections. And it's one of the four brahma-viharas, one of the four divine abidings. Metta, unconditional care and acceptance and love. Karuna, compassion. Mudita, appreciative or empathetic joy. And upekka, equanimity. It's also one of the two jhana factors that are present in the fourth rupa jhana. Ikagata, ikagata, the one-pointedness, and equanimity being the other factor. Upeka was the final factor to come into maturity before the Buddha attained full awakening, full enlightenment as he sat under the Bodhi tree that now famous night. He sat there with an evenness and balance in his relaxed and powerful presence, as though he were an immovable mountain. He sat, as he sat there with his amazing grace, this amazing grace of impartiality and balance, seeing things clearly, and relinquishing, letting go, relinquishing every attachment to all formations of body and mind, and then breaking through to the great awakening, breaking through to the complete end of suffering. And a quote from the Buddha. Here a bhikkhu or a yogi or a meditator whose cankers are destroyed is neither overjoyed nor distraught on seeing a visible object with the eye, hearing an audible sound with the ear, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. She, he, dwells in equanimity, mindful, and fully aware. Equanimity is the fearlessness, a great strength and 
ease of the mind, the heart, to remain centered and unmoved in the midst of it all. The literal uh, translation of the Pali word upeka is on-looking. Equanimity looks on at the occurrence of physical and mental pleasure and pain by maintaining a neutral mode, by staying in the center, staying in the middle, and watching things as they arise and pass. On looking, it sees them fairly, we could say. It sees them without favoritism, without bias, without partiality. So one attribute of equanimity itself, as it's described in the realm of feeling, is neither painful nor pleasant feeling. We could say neutral feeling. Equanimity is the equipoise, we could say, the balance or the equilibrium between the opposing forces of the mind of the desired and the undesired. This equipoise of equanimity offsets the weightiness of greed and the, the weightiness of aversion. It's that point of balance in the middle of the seesaw of life. The mind, the heart, doesn't move towards, nor does it move away. I remember as a child that I loved to find that point of balance when I was playing on the seesaw or the teeter-totter, as we used to call it, with another child. Both of us suspended in our teeter-totter seat, perfectly balanced in mid-air for a moment or two. There was always this certain kind of happy and almost breathtaking feeling inside me when these moments would happen. The poet T.S. Eliot said it quite beautifully, and these are his words. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. This still point of equanimity is a place of protection. A place of protection while at the same time being an experience of great spaciousness and great strength of mind and heart. The Buddha used the metaphor of putting a spoonful of salt in a cup of water. 
because of the small container, the water, of course, would be extremely salty, would be harsh, it would not be drinkable. On the other hand, if we put a spoonful of salt into a larger body of water, such as Gaston Pond, maybe some of you have walked by it uh, here around the loop walk, of course it won't have the same effect because of the enormous amount of water, because of the great wateriness or the great spaciousness, we could say, that the salt is put into. And of course, let's be honest, life is quite salty at times. It's just how it is at times. One aspect of the development of equanimity is about creating the spaciousness of mind and heart with which we can meet and look on at all of life's everyday experiences, as well as all the subtleties of internal and external phenomena that we come to see and know through our practice. To look on with balance, with equipoise, with the heart of greatness, with what's called in the suttas in relationship to equanimity as a factor of enlightenment, to look on with specific neutrality. So what does this mean, specific neutrality? It means that whatever states of consciousness are present, including at times the other six enlightenment factors, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, and concentration, including at times the the immeasurable, the other three immeasurable uh, states of mind, the divine abidings, metta, karuna, and mudita, as well as the arising of various other wholesome states, such as patience, faith, that they're all looked on. This, this specific neutrality means that they're all looked on, they're all met, they're all experienced and seen, looked on at evenly through the mind of equanimity. The function of equanimity as an enlightenment factor is to inhibit partiality. And so upekka, as I've already mentioned, manifests as neutrality. There's a wonderful little book of teachings from Zen master Dogen with commentary by Uchiyama Roshi. It's called How to Cook Your Life, where Dogen uses the work of the monastery cook the tenzo, as it's called in um, Japanese Zen, and our relationship to food to teach us, in this case, about equanimity. And we, of course, can bring uh, this teaching immediately close, right here and now in relationship to our tenzos, our cooks here at the Forest Refuge, and the food that we are offered here in retreat. And also we can bring this teaching into our life when we're back home. 
And so from Dogen. Handle even a single leaf of a green in such a way that it manifests the body of the Buddha. This in turn allows the Buddha to manifest through the leaf. This is a power you can't grasp with your rational mind. It operates freely according to the situation in a most natural way. At the same time, this power functions in our lives to clarify and settle activities and is beneficial to all living beings. And he goes on. A dish is not necessarily superior because you have prepared it with choice ingredients, nor is a soup inferior because you have made it with ordinary greens. When handling and selecting greens, do so wholeheartedly with a pure mind and without trying to evaluate their quality in the same way in which you would prepare a splendid feast. In practicing the Dharma, delicious and ordinary tastes are the same and not two. There's an old saying, the mouth of a yogi or the mouth of a monk is like an oven. And he goes on. And this uh, referral comes, of course, from the time of Dogen. It's a little different than how we cook things these days, but this is what he said. Just as an oven burns both sandalwood for incense and cow dung (laughs) for cooking, of course there was no uh, natural gas or propane or electricity to cook with in the time of Dogen. So just as an oven burns both sandalwood and incense for incense and cow dung for cooking without distinction our mouths should be the same there should be no distinction between delicious food and food which is plain and simple we should be satisfied with whatever we receive <clears throat> So how does one look on at the mind with equanimity? What contributes to this looking on in this way? What contributes to this capacity of relating to all things with equanimity? So a simple example in relationship to our practice. We sit and find that the mind is tranquil, serene, and this is known. And we recognize that the focusing power of the mind, concentration, is evenly and repeatedly connecting with whatever the object of attention is. The mind isn't listless, nor is it agitated, but rather it's interested and appropriately energized. At those times, there really isn't any interest in or necessity for exerting or restraining or encouraging the mind in any way. In our practice, just simply and clearly recognizing and knowing without attachment that this is what's occurring that these factors of mind are in place for a brief moment 
or maybe for a longer period of time, is actually something that contributes to the blossoming of the state or the blossoming of the factor of equanimity, thus contributing to our capacity to relate to all things, all phenomena with equipoise and composure. During the time and the culture of the Buddha, his metaphor for the mind when it's in this mode was this. One is like the charioteer who looks on, who looks with equanimity on horses progressing evenly. Well, more likely in our case, uh, the metaphor might be one is like the driver of a car who looks on with equanimity in a car that's running along evenly when it's set on cruise control. We're able to see and to know. We're able to take in what's in front of us and what's passing by with ease. We're taking it in with ease. This quality, this factor of mind allows the process of practice, the progress of insight and the development of concentration to unfold without getting caught, without getting mired by the habits of mind that stop things up. Maybe such as the various habits of clinging and attachment, the various habits of identification that can create a block, that create a tangle, we could say, in the flow of the process. Within the ambiance of equanimity, even the subtlety of the habits of attachment and identification and aversion and the comparing mind can be seen, known, and let go of, allowing concentration and understanding or insight to blossom, to deepen, and eventually to mature. As we practice, we begin to taste equanimity along with the arising of other wholesome states such as patience and confidence and metta. And of course, as each of you know, until equanimity is really truly matured, we can lose and regain, or we do lose and regain our balance over and over again. Quite a number of years ago, for the whole of the last two weeks of a a long retreat that I was sitting, I I practiced equanimity uh, the whole time, the whole two weeks. Uh, in the way that it's practiced as uh, Abrahma Viharas, one of the sublime abidings, silently repeating uh, one of the equanimity phrases over and over and over again, first directing it to myself, and then on through all of the same uh, categories that are used for metta practice. And the phrase that I used was, I am the heir of my kama. Kama being the Pali word, karma being the Sanskrit word. I am the heir of my kama, meaning the heir of all of my deeds, all of my actions of mind, 
speech, and body. So I am the heir of my kama. My happiness and my suffering depend upon my actions, not upon my wishes for myself. So by the end of repeating that phrase, that was the only phrase I used, by the end of repeating that phrase, hundreds and hundreds of times (laughs) over a two-week period, there seemed to be quite a deep and quiet sense of balance and evenness and neutrality in the mind and heart. A day or two before the end of the retreat, the thought came up. Well, there's equanimity here. Seems to be a fairly deep and abiding equanimity. And then the next thought was, I wonder if there's an equanimity test. <laughs> and then I thought again, another thought. <clears throat> if this was a Zen session, if this was a Zen retreat, any good Zen teacher would do something creatively startling to check my equanimity. But this is a Vipassana retreat, and Vipassana teachers don't do things like that. And then all those thoughts just disappeared. Well, later that day, I was actually startled (laughs) in true Vipassana fashion. An equanimity test, Vipassana style. I got a note signed by one of my equanimity teachers, though the note was actually from all five of the teachers who were teaching that retreat. And the note said, we would like you to give the dana talk, we would like you to give the generosity talk to the yogis tomorrow. Well, at that point I was not teaching. I had no idea about teaching. I was just practicing at that point, practicing equanimity. So it was quite a shock. For a moment, this equanimity that I was experiencing flew right out the window. And my heart felt like it stopped. And the old habit of fear flew in. I can't, I can't do this now, said my old habit. I've been silent for so many weeks and so deeply into practice. I can't get up in front of all my fellow yogis and speak. It's totally impossible. I can't do it. And then the heart and the mind relaxed and saw what was mindfully saw what had just occurred. And the thought came in, ah, ah yes, this is my equanimity test. Of course, that's what it is. And I can do it. And I want to do it. So at that moment, a tremendous flood of gratitude came into the mind and heart. Gratitude for the teachers, for the retreat center staff, for the teachings, for the practice. And just as suddenly as it had disappeared, equanimity was back. What I was being asked to do felt like the most natural thing in the world to be doing. So yes, until equanimity has matured, 
we lose and we regain our balance and our equipoise, the balance and the equipoise of equanimity, over and over and over again. Upeka manifests as quieting fear, boredom, dislike, resentment, and the self-judgment that can manifest as guilt and disapproval, not being good enough. It also manifests as quieting liking, pride, attachment, and the judgment of approval in relationship to what we think of as ourself, me, my experiences. Equanimity also manifests in quieting the attachment and the fear that comes up in relationship to others. Along the way of our practice, when equanimity has arisen and and is developing, in those moments, fear and resentment, attachment, identification, and the judgments of approval and disapproval, they subside. They don't disappear, but they do subside. Within the clear space of a momentary or longer, really true neutrality, there's really nothing for greed or aversion to stick to when they arise. Equanimity fails when it produces what's called the equanimity of unknowing, which the Buddha called worldly-minded indifference produced by ignorance. So what does this mean, worldly minded indifference produced by ignorance. It occurs when we don't clearly see or clearly see through the object of our attention with a focused attention, mindfulness, and that's rooted in kind-heartedness. And instead, we're blindly seduced by and swept away in the happenings of life seemingly, seemingly equanimous with it all. This isn't upeka. It's what the Buddha called indifference based in or produced by ignorance. And some words from the Buddha regarding this. On seeing a visible object with the eye or in relationship to contact through any of the six sense doors, equanimity arises in the foolish, infatuated, ordinary man or woman, in the untaught, ordinary woman or man who hasn't seen or conquered his or her limitations, who hasn't understood or conquered future results, meaning karma or kama who is unperceiving of danger in relationship to attachment or aversion. Such equanimity doesn't see through the visible object. Such so-called equanimity is actually worldly-minded indifference based in ignorance. The Buddha was very often, most often, 
really wonderfully direct and very straightforward and very succinct in his teaching. So, a brief personal story in relation to this. When I first moved to Taos, New Mexico, I noticed that there were many, many beautiful handcrafted things in the store windows. Taos is a place where many artists and crafts people live and gather and offer their creations. So I noticed that. Couldn't help but notice it. And at times, as I was noticing this, looking in the store windows, I would get quite infatuated with what I was seeing. And sometimes getting quite caught up in the delusion of needing what I was seeing. That very painful contraction of what what I like to call the must-have mind. So it happened enough, and it was painful enough, that I decided to do a practice with it. So over time, I did this practice of walking along in town and looking in the store windows, looking in all the shop windows, and watching the process of my mind and heart in relationship to what I was seeing. took a while, but eventually I began to just be able to appreciate the beauty of what I was seeing, with also appreciation for the amazing creative capacities of the human beings who made all of the objects that I was seeing. And it was a pleasure then, it was enjoyable, and it was way more relaxing. (laughs) The Dalai Lama tells a story uh, about being taken to a particular area in London by a friend, and uh, as they walked along, uh, passing various shops that sell all kinds of little tiny mechanical parts, which happens to be of a, a particular interest and fascination of his, he said that he found himself having a very strong inner feeling of wanting them all, all these little tiny mechanical parts. And then he realized that he didn't even know what any of them were for. <laughs> I'm sure that every one of us in this room has experienced the pretense, we could call it, the pretense of equanimity within ourselves in the midst of greed or dislike or boredom or resentment or anger or fear, maybe disappointment, the kind of glossing over, the ignorance, meaning ignoring these states and pretending to ourselves the pretense of equanimity. Oh, it doesn't really matter. You know, that attitude. Or, oh, it's, it's all really just fine. Or, I'm totally okay. Maybe though accompanied by a slight or maybe not so slight moving away or contraction or an inner sense maybe of grasping that we may not be aware of. 
This, of course, isn't equanimity. It's actually indifference, which is the near enemy of equanimity. Indifference, we could say, masquerading as equanimity. And, of course, we all know from our own experience that when we're inflamed with greed or dislike or fear or grief or resentment, it's extremely difficult. Or it just isn't even at all possible to look on at those moments with a true equanimity. Upeka is based on an attentive, clear presence of mind. Not on dullness, not on indifference. And it's not a kind of casual passing mood. And it's not produced by exertion. It's really the result. It's one of the fruits of our practice. The fruit of training the mind, training the heart through the development and blossoming of the factors of mindfulness, concentration, a balanced effort, joy, tranquility, loving kindness, compassion, and investigation. A true equanimity is able to meet all of the vicissitudes of life. These flip-flops, we could say, that we encounter in our mind in relationship to what are called the eight worldly winds. And these being praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame or distinction and disrepute or disrespect or disregard, these worldly winds that come our way throughout our life to varying degrees. True equanimity is able to meet all of these sometimes what feel like harsh experiences, harsh tests, and it's quickly able to regenerate itself, its strength, from our inner resources. These resources that, in fact, we have been developing through our diligent practice. And from the Buddha, from the Sutta Nipata. Develop the mind of equilibrium. You will always be getting praise and blame. But do not let either affect the poise of the mind. Follow the calmness the absence of pride. There's an amazing practice that was, I've been told, uh, was and maybe still is occasionally practiced by the Hopi Native Americans, Hopi Indians. Now, just to say I don't recommend this practice, but we can take it as a metaphor for us in relationship to the cultivation and manifestation of the power of fearlessness, evenness of mind and heart, and the protection that is one of the great, great strengths of equanimity. This is from the Book of the Hopi by Frank Waters. 
There were all, this is from the book, right from the book. There were all kinds of snakes, rattlesnakes, big bull snakes, racers, sidewinders, gopher snakes, about 60, all tangled on the floor. The singing stirred them. They moved in one direction, then another, looking over all the men in the circle. The men never moved. They just kept singing with a kind expression on their faces. The snakes began to roll in the sand, taking their bath. Then a big yellow rattler moved slowly toward an old man, singing with his eyes closed, climbed up his crossed leg, coiled in front of his breechcloth, and went to sleep. Pretty soon this old man had five or six snakes crawling over his body raising their head to look at his closed eyes and peaceful face, then going to sleep. It showed that they had found their friend, looking within the heart of this one upon whose body they chose to rest. This is the way snakes show who are good and kind men with pure hearts. True equanimity will possess the power of protection and also a wholesome resistance, a wholesome resistance in relationship to the mind, the heart, getting seduced by and caught up in states of fear, greed, and aversion. And equanimity also possesses the power of renewing itself. But only if it's deeply rooted in a growing insight into the true nature of things. There are two particular understandings that I'd like to spend just a little bit of time exploring with you this evening in that as they develop along the way of our practice and eventually ripen into insight, ripen into understanding, are really the root of equanimity. The first of these is our growing clarity and understanding in how the vicissitudes, the ups and downs, the eight worldly winds of life, how they originate, how they come to be. So this is the understanding of kama or karma in Pali. Kama in Pali, karma in Sanskrit. The understanding that the various experiences of stress, of suffering, and the experiences of ease are the result of our kama, the result of our actions, our actions of thought, speech, and deed, right here and now in this lifetime, and on back and back and back. This is kama. This is our kama. We're born, we spring out of the womb of Kama, we could say. 
And even though we may or may not like it at times, we're undeniably the heirs of our kama. So, an easily understandable example, I think. Just as soon as we've spoken words or performed any action, we've totally lost control over it. And yet, it remains with us. In some way, it inevitably returns to us as our due inheritance. And we've all experienced that in small ways and in big ways. We could say that everything that happens and the ease or the dis-ease in our mind and heart is the outcome of our mind's relationship to all of the happenings in life internally and externally. In other words, our suffering and our happiness in this life, in any given moment, is due to our own mind. Due to our own mind. Our motivations and our responses or reactions to phenomena. Not due to our hopes and our wishes for ourselves, And not due to some other person or some outer antagonistic or seemingly strange or foreign world. As this understanding takes root in us, it actually has the power to free us from fear. And so is actually one of the roots of equanimity. When we begin to see that we only meet ourselves, we only meet our own mind in relationship to everything that happens around us and within us. We only meet our own mind. What is there to fear? This is then an opening, an opportunity for the heart the mind to begin to relax. And we begin to know that we can change our mind. That in fact we're not trapped on the karmic wheel running around and around and around like a little mouse. But of course, as we've all experienced, fear, uncertainty, and insecurity arise along the way. And at the same time, as we traverse this path, we do clearly begin to see and to know that the refuge where fear can be dispelled is through our good deeds. Refuge from this particular perspective is in wholesome thought, wholesome motivations, wholesome words, and performing wholesome actions. And as we take this refuge, there comes to be a growing confidence in the great protecting power of good deeds that we've done in the past and a growing courage to 
perform more and more wholesome deeds right now, even in the midst of what might be some hardship in our current life. Our practice itself, this incredible training of the mind and heart, this practice, is a very, very good deed, the best really, and the essential ground for the blossoming of wholesomeness in all, through all aspects of our life. One of the things that's been important to me in understanding kama is that it's always the right time to perform wholesome actions. It's always the right time to do good deeds. It's never too late. Maybe some of us have been told, well, too bad, it's too late. Not true, not true. No matter how old we get, an old dog can learn new tricks. (laughs) And so we practice this, and it becomes established in us. And it becomes a refuge. And at some point, we know for sure, as was said by one of the Buddha's disciples, more and more ceases the misery and evil rooted in the past. And in this present life, I try to make it spotless and pure. What else then can the future bring other than increase of the good? As this becomes more and more of a certainty in our heart and mind, the mind becomes more tranquil, more serene. As we take or engage, we could say, in this refuge, we gain the strength of the evenness and balance and patience of the heart of equanimity in relationship to the various challenges and difficulties in our practice and in our life as a whole. Along the way of our practice, with the development and blossoming of relative equanimity, we find that we then have the strength, the strength to endure when we need to endure. And we have the ability to see clearly when that's what's called for. We have the possibility of not just simply continuing to blindly fall into the same holes over and over and over again but to begin to walk down a different street. The understanding of kama can imbue us with a powerful motivation to free ourselves from kama, to free ourselves from the actions that again and again throw us into repeated suffering. As we more and more clearly see our own craving and delusion and our habitual tendencies to create and engage in situations that strain and sap our strength and sap our healthy resistance. A wholesome disgust, as the Buddha called it, arises. And our motivation to practice in order to free ourselves from craving and delusion is strengthened. 
the fruit of the deliverance of a deep and clear experience and understanding of equanimity is the escape from greed, the escape from what in Pali is tanha, which is translated as insatiable thirst, the escape from insatiable thirst. So the first insight that is the basis of equanimity is a growing understanding of kama or karma. The second insight that equanimity is based on is the teaching and understanding of anatta, not self. And we'll just talk about this a bit. So from this perspective, there's no one, no self performing any deeds, nor do do the results affect any self. The fact is, the, the truth is, that it's the delusion, it's the wrong view of a separate solid self, a separate me that creates suffering and that disturbs equanimity. If we claim ownership, meaning this is mine, this is me, this is who I am, the vicissitudes of life will always throw us into the realm of suffering. So for instance, if this or that aspect of our personality, some particular quality of ours is criticized or is is blamed, one thinks I'm blamed and equanimity is shaken. When we receive approval or we receive praise for something that we've done, we very often think, well, I've been praised, I'm, I'm a success. Well, equanimity is disturbed at that point. If this or that work that we've done doesn't succeed or isn't praised in the way we want it to be, one may often think, well, my work, my work has failed. I have failed. And again, equanimity is shaken. If wealth or a loved one is lost, one thinks, what's mine has gone and equanimity is shaken again. The unwavering mountain of equanimity is always shaken in the delusion with the identification of me, mine, I am. As understanding deepens and the heart opens, there's an easing of the constrictive feelings and thoughts based in self-centeredness. Unshakable equanimity is established by giving up, by relinquishing all possessive thoughts, the thoughts of mine, which uh, that thought in itself (laughs) may be quite a daunting thought. So because it can be quite a daunting thought, we begin with the small things, the small things from which it's easy to detach oneself. 
And gradually, gradually working up to the possessions and the the goals and the identifications that we so tenaciously cling to. The first time that I taught here at the Forest Refuge was for two months. And I was the very first visiting teacher here now, I don't know, 15, 16, 17 years ago. I don't remember how long, a while. And I was here long enough, that, that two months, to really settle in. And yet again and again, there was the awareness that the house that I was staying in, it wasn't mine. And it came about in many small, uh, simple, and sometimes su- some surprising ways. When I first got here, there was no telephone in the house. So... I lobbied for a telephone, we could say, which in moments really felt like it was for me. And there was quite a degree of tension and some stress in this lobbying for my telephone. But in truth, the phone was for the many, many, many others who would be using the house over many years. At one point, uh, I was told that it was okay, that it was okayed, that a phone would be put into the house. But when that was, ha- would hap- was going to happen was unknown. <laughs> well, at that point, there was a pretty quick letting go, and pretty much no more thoughts occurred about that. I relaxed, and I really did truly feel that it, it didn't matter if the phone arrived uh, while I was staying in the house or not, because it really wasn't for me. It wasn't mine. At another point during that two months, it was decided to purchase a rug for the living room of the house. There was no no rug or carpet in the house. Well, Jeannie, who was the housekeeper at the time, brought the rug catalog over for us to decide which rug to order. Well, it clearly wasn't a rug for me. It clearly wasn't a rug for my house. We were choosing for anyone. We were choosing for everyone. And I noticed it was such a different experience in the heart with this. Not that subtle kind of contraction of something being mine, something being for me. There was an openness, a spaciousness. There wasn't any contraction, no clinging in the choosing. And it was a lot more fun that way. So the small things. The small things that we think are ours. And then working up to giving up, letting go, relinquishing other stickier thoughts of self. Beginning to relinquish maybe the identification with some of the qualities that we're identified with as who we think we are. Our personality. It's the thought of these being who I am. This is important. It's the thought of these being who I am that we relinquish. The clinging thought of these being who I am that we give up, that we let go of. And again, beginning with small aspects of our personality, qualities of seeming minor importance. And then very slowly and 
kindly and gently through our practice, working up to letting go of identification, practicing detachment in relationship to those emotions and aversions that we may regard as the center of our being. Ajahn Sumedho, the former abbot of Amaravati Monastery in England, shares a really wonderful way of practicing with this. When a particular habitual tendency of his shows up, and in this case he was talking about his habitual tendency of the critical mind, he says, oh, there's my personality. A good example. (laughs) Can our personality be impersonal? Can we relinquish our identity with this or that being who I am, being me? Even including positive emotions and maybe including specific gifts that we might regard and be identified with as the center of our being. To whatever degree we abandon, we relinquish thoughts of mine, of me, of I am. To whatever degree we forsake thoughts of self, equanimity will enter our heart. When we realize, when we really truly come to know anything as void of a self, in those moments, how could any agitation, how could, it, how could anything of these things, these experiences, these identifications, how could any of it cause us any agitation due to lust or hatred or fear or grief? Consequently, the teaching and the practice of anatta is an important guide along the path to perfect equanimity and our guide along the path to liberation. Equanimity, the unshakable balance of mind and heart is rooted in understanding, is rooted in insight. The first understanding, the first insight being that of Kama, and the second being anatta. The heart, the mind of specific neutrality, equanimity, it isn't cold or heartless or dull. It doesn't manifest out of an emotional emptiness but rather out of a fullness or a completeness of connection and understanding. At some point in our practice, somewhere along the way, in this lifetime or many lifetimes to come, equanimity will evolve from being relative equanimity to absolute equanimity. In the 
progress of insight, when equanimity is strong and fulfilled and mature, concentration and insight or concentration and understanding occur coupled together without either one exceeding the other. Along with and in balance with all of the other factors of enlightenment. With all of these occurring at that point with what has been called a single taste. The single taste of awakening. The single taste of liberation. Liberation from the kilesas, from the cankers. Deliverance from suffering. At that point, there's understanding, there's insight knowledge into the dangers of the afflictive emotions, dangers into the defilements, and insight knowledge into the advantages of purification. Understanding or insight at this point produces what the Buddha called a satisfiedness, a purifiedness, and a clarifiedness within one which is manifesting due to one's capacity for on-looking equanimity. And then the Buddha spoke about this as absolute equanimity, or he called it unworldly or holy equanimity. And in the Buddha's words, just as all the streams of the world enter the great ocean and all the waters of the sky rain into it, but not increase or decrease of the great ocean is seen. Such is the nature of holy equanimity. And as we've looked at for each of the factors of awakening, each of the factors of enlightenment uh, through these last weeks, as an aid, as a nutriment for the arising and development of equanimity, we'll look at some of this in relationship to equanimity. The Buddha and the commentaries, uh, Buddha's teachings and in the commentaries, they offer us some very specific directions in this area. And from the Buddha, we're told to... uh, Listen to, approach, attend to, and recollect, and go forth after monks, nuns, and laypersons who are accomplished in virtue and concentration and insight and who have knowledge and vision of liberation. It's said that hearing the Dhamma from such people is helpful. We're told to dwell mindfully and to clearly discern, investigate states. And that if we discern states with care and with wisdom, our energy will be aroused without slacking. And when this happens, a spiritual joy is aroused and it's developed. And that when one's mind and heart is uplifted with spiritual joy, the body will become tranquil. And when the body is tranquil, one's mind becomes tranquil. 
And we're told that for one's body who is tranquil and who is quietly happy in heart and mind, the mind is then easily concentrated. And that when concentration develops and deepens, one looks on with equanimity at the mind that is concentrated. And the commentaries, that was from the Buddha, and the commentaries tell us that there are some particular conditions in the whole of our life which will help to help us towards the arising and development of equanimity. Developing and maintaining neutrality towards living beings. Not spending uh, a tremendous amount of time uh, with... uh, people who are very possessive. Developing, developing and maintaining neutrality towards inanimate objects. And associating with people as much as possible who maintain neutrality towards beings and inanimate objects. And lastly, the commentaries say to make a resolve to incline the mind, to incline the heart towards the arising and the development, the fulfillment and the perfection of equanimity. And as we practice and as our practice develops, we come to know when this enlightenment factor of upekka, of equanimity, is in us. And we know when it's absent. And we know how it arises and how its development comes about. And so we practice. We practice here in retreat, at home, with our sangha, in the midst of our daily lives as well. And we practice with sincerity and with diligence. And we sit with a growing understanding and the blossoming of understanding, more understanding. As awakening beings, we practice with aspiration and with determination. And because of all of this, it's inevitable that mindfulness, concentration, and all of the wholesome factors of mind and heart, as well as the liberating insights, will sprout and blossom and eventually mature in us. It's our kama, we could say. So I'd like to close with two short pieces from the Udana, the Udana being the inspired utterances of the Buddha. whose mind stands like a mountain, steady. It is not perturbed, unattached to things that arouse attachment, unangered by things that provoke anger. When his or her mind is cultivated thus, how can suffering come to her, to him? And the second piece from the Udana. 
For one who clings, motion exists. And this means the movement of the mind. For one who clings, motion exists. But for one who clings not, there is no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming nor going. Where no coming nor going is, there is neither arising nor passing away. Where neither arising nor passing away is, there is neither this world nor a world beyond, nor any place betwixt the two. This, in truth, is the end of suffering. And let's sit quietly for just a moment or two. May all of the wholesome energies and the fruits that manifest through our practice serve with immeasurable impartiality, without bias, without prejudice, towards the welfare, the happiness, and the awakening of all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. And we'll close the evening as we... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.